people don't know who Morris Chang is, uh, for example. And I just think that's a, a horrible oversight, given that Morris Chang was one of the most influential business people of the last hundred years. And his career is just an extraordinary case study, not only in business, but also in describing some of the big geopolitical shifts of the past century or so. The key differentiating factor when it comes to the ability of countries to apply AI to different spheres is actually probably not the data in general, with, there will be some variations, but I think the key differentiation is actually in the processing power. And that's what makes all of this so dangerous because TSMC isn't just any company, it's the world's largest and most important chip maker. It produces 90% of the most advanced logic chips as well as over one third of the new computing power the world consumes every year. And given that context, the question of can the US catch up in fabricating processor chips is really a question of can Intel catch up in fabricating processor chips. From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen. Good to be with you again, as always. Really looking forward to this conversation. Good to be with you, Doug. Yeah, we feel really very fortunate today to have with us Chris Miller. He's the author of an important new book called Chip War. He is also a professor at the Fletcher School of Diplomacy at Tufts University, one of our leading universities in that area in foreign policy. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, Chip War primarily focuses on the emerging trade conflicts between the U.S. and China and how that has evolved and developed. In fact, there's even news today. It seems almost every day, certainly every week, there's new developments in that area. But Shaheen, I know you had a whole raft of questions that we're going to ask for Chris. Why don't you jump in with the first question you'd like sure. to Sure. Yeah. First of all, Chris, congratulations on such, a, such an insightful and enjoyable book. I've really had a great time reading it and highly recommend it to our audience. Go get it. It's available in print and in audio. My first topic really for discussion is risk management. I mean, everything we've seen through the pandemic, but also as you look back to the history of technology, as you so eloquently describe in the book, from loss of competitiveness to over-reliance on foreign supply chains, it just indicates, is it poor risk management or is it just sort of black swans left and right? Well, I think it's a, it's a tricky balance to strike because on the one hand, the complexity of semiconductors supply chains today is inevitable given how hard it is to make leading edge chips. You, know, you simply can't do it with just a couple of companies or even a couple of countries in your supply chain. There's so many process steps from the initial design all the way through final assembly test and packaging that you've got to have lots of different companies involved, which raises more risk at each step in the process. I think the second issue when it comes to risk management is that in the semiconductor supply chain, there are a number of steps where there's just one or in some cases a handful of companies that play the dominant role in the market. This is true in chip design software. This is true for the design of many types of chips. It's true for the machine tools that produce chips. And so because there's a small number of firms that have a, such a big market position in many of these key steps, that adds another level of risk in the process. But the reality is you can't produce chips without having this extraordinary complexity around them today. And that complexity creates some 
inevitable risk that just has to be managed. It can't be completely avoided. So that also implies a pressure towards more globalization because you soon realize that there's no way I can do this all by myself. I'm going to have to rely on other people whose control is, you know, or friendliness may or may not be consistent. How do we square that with the existing really trend towards partitioning the world and fragmentation of the global supply chain? Well, I would say that actually globalization, it's a phrase we often use when it comes to semiconductors, but it's actually an inaccurate phrase because Mm -hmm. the production of chips is not globalized. It's internationalized, but actually among a very small number of countries that play a large role in the chip supply chain. The US, Japan, Taiwan, Korea, and the Netherlands produce most of the value in the chip industry globally. And most other countries produce very little, in some cases, none. So actually, the chip industry isn't globalized. It's internationalized in a very specific way. But it's also highly concentrated, because even if you look at those five countries that I mentioned, Netherlands, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, the US, for some of those countries, there's a whole lot of concentration in terms of what those countries focus on. So South Korea's primary focus is in memory chips. The Netherlands is overwhelmingly important because of its lithography tools. So even there, that's not a story of globalization. That's a story of specialization among a small number of countries, each of which has pretty much irreplaceable capabilities in the production of advanced chips. But then during the pandemic, one of the things that system companies, including supercomputer companies, found with the supply chain was that while the main ingredients were available, if you were missing a $5 plastic piece that was connecting something to something, you'd be stuck. And sometimes they could just go 3D printed and call it good, but sometimes that was an issue. Is that also the case here? Because while the main pieces are the five countries, there's this little thing that you need that's coming from somewhere else. You know, I think that dynamic is present. The key question with supply chain vulnerabilities is how hard, how time consuming, and how expensive is it to find an alternative source of supply? Mm. And I think for the $5 part, What you'll find is that it's not all that expensive. It might be a little bit time consuming, but it isn't disastrously complex to find alternative sources of supply. Whereas if you look at the more durable choke points, if you will, in the semiconductor's production process, like the machine tools or like the EDA software, what Mm -hmm. you find is that there's very little way around them at all. Uh, You've Mm -hmm. got to access those companies' products or you can't make an advanced chip. And one case in point might be neon gas, which in the early part of this year was majority provided by either Russia or Ukraine. And indeed, Ukraine, one of its key facilities for producing neon gas was in the Azovstal steel facility that was besieged by the Russians for several months. And so that was knocked offline, of course, during the war. And the Russians earlier this year cut their exports of this gas with the aim of causing production problems in semiconductors globally. And it had basically no effect because although Russia was a big player, in fact, there are other countries you can buy from, new supplies came online, companies found ways to reduce their consumption. And so it's been basically a non-issue. And so, yes, there's a complex supply chain that touches many different countries, but for the key components that it's really hard to get around, there's just a small number of countries that play a predominant role. Chris, I'm just fascinated by this perennial yin-yang push-pull between the desire for the U.S. from a business perspective to have strong trade relations with China. It's benefited both countries tremendously from an economic standpoint, but with the increasing tensions in the region in Southeast Asia and China's seemingly increasing aggressiveness toward Taiwan, a major friend of the United States, with implications for South Korea 
Japan, other allies of ours in the region. Do you think that we have handled our trade relation in combination with foreign relations with China wisely over the past, oh, I guess six years, really since President Trump ratcheted up tariffs and so forth, and the Biden administration has continued them, or unwisely? I'm just curious about your high-level assessment of how that has been handled by the United States. Well, I think there's been a a pretty clear trend for almost a decade now of growing skepticism of China's intentions internationally, coupled with growing concern about China's growing capabilities, above all in a military sense, but also in other aspects of national power. And those two things combined have really created a revolution in U.S.-China policy, whereas 20 years ago, as you say, the primary focus of the U.S. was mostly about trying to benefit from China's economic growth. There was a little bit of hedging going on, concern about China's military modernization, but it was by far the less important factor in the U.S.-China relationship and expanding trade was the more important factor. And that has really shifted dramatically since that time period, whereas today, the key focus of policymakers, but also increasingly of business executives, is mitigating risks posed by China rather than capitalizing on Chinese economic growth. So I think in hindsight, if you talk to many American leaders in the political sphere or in the corporate sphere, they will express regret that they didn't come to their current realization more quickly, even though I think there's there's not much that can be done about the, the decisions of the past at this point. And now the challenge that the U.S. faces is that it's got a much more advanced China in military terms and technological terms and a much larger China in terms of economic heft that will be more difficult to deal with than it would have been several decades ago. The term that we often see in the HPC industry is the move toward indigenous technology. I don't know if that's a phrase used outside of the industry, but the drive within the supercomputing world toward building chip technology that region by region, country by country. So the EU, China, Japan, the US, each building their own capability that will obviate being dependent on anyone else. And that's especially true in US, China. So the trade war really impacts this industry, supercomputing, as much if not more than any other sector of the technology industry. And it's a continual source of developments. We even saw today that NVIDIA has announced a way to work within the latest restrictions from the Biden administration. They have a modified GPU. So there again, I think we're seeing this continual tension between the drive for business opportunities within the restrictions that reflect geopolitical tension. Yeah, I think that's right. And and we should expect companies to do exactly that since their job is to sell products and to make money. I, I think what we have seen is two things. One is a lot more restrictions from governments and from the US government in particular on what companies can and cannot do. And this is restrictions not only on US companies, but also increasingly on foreign companies using US technology. And in the chip space, that means most companies because it's very hard to avoid US technology in this sphere. So that has certainly constrained what businesses can do. And the NVIDIA news that you mentioned is a perfect example of that. They used to be able to sell a 100 chips. Now they can't do that. So they've found a different way to sell chips that are 
less advanced, less capable than the A100. So on the one hand, it's businesses finding ways to sell products. On the other hand, it's businesses being really constrained by what they can do and having to develop entire new product lines to reach their customer base in China. The second thing I would say is that compared to just a couple of years ago, and I think this is largely driven by the Russian attack on Ukraine, is that my sense at least, and it's hard to quantify this, but, but my strong sense is that compared to a year ago, across society, but especially among the business elite, there's a sense that actually conflict between large economies is not something that's confined to the history books. It's something that's very possible. It's happened between Russia and Ukraine. And anyone who thought there was just a 1% chance or a 2% chance of a war between China and Taiwan, I think those low probabilities look a lot harder to sustain. Now, I'm not saying it's mm. likely to happen in the next couple of years, but it's not a 1% chance. And I, I don't think there are many people today that would put such a low probability on things. But a year ago, I think that was kind of the assumption in most of the business community. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of what's going on right now is just unreal compared to what was expected or assumed only a few months ago, even a couple of years ago. So one thing that this leads to is that I have to assume there were people all along raising the flag and saying, if you do this, this bad thing is going to happen. And obviously they were not listened to. Why was that? <laughs> Why was it that our risk assessment underplayed what turned out to be the right way of assessing potential threats? Well, I think there were a couple of judgments about A, China, and B, the United States that proved not fully accurate. The first was about China's foreign intentions. For a long time, the dominant view in the US was that China would be what influential diplomat Bob Zelik called a, quote, responsible stakeholder mm. in the international system. And in the 1990s and even in the 2000s, there was evidence that you could use to support that view. But I think now if you look at China's approach to Taiwan, the crushing of the democracy in Hong Kong, the border clash with India from two years ago, and then China's general approach to not only its neighbors, but also countries around the world that want to take their own views on Taiwan or on Xinjiang. You see China is much more combative than I think many people expected. I think the second thing is that next to that, there was a sense, which was not really based that much in evidence, but there was a sense that US military advantage would just continue indefinitely. And in reality, what we've seen is that the US military, in part because it's been focused on other regions of the world, has lost a substantial portion of its edge in East Asia. And that's been driven in large part because China has been building up its military as its economy has grown, so too has its defense spending, and therefore has the number of military systems it's able to deploy. And for the U.S., that's a problem because although the U.S. still has a qualitative edge over China's military, it's, it's falling so far behind in quantitative terms that every war game that's run by the U.S. military or by independent analysts suggests that the U.S. faces more severe issues than ever before in terms of defending Taiwan. And although that probably should have been obvious to the typical analyst or decision maker two decades ago. I think most people didn't really think about the ramifications of that. And now that we're having to think about the ramifications of that, we're already at a point where actually it's become quite dangerous. And U.S. military weakness, I think, provides some uncertainty to Chinese leaders about whether, in fact, we would be able or willing to defend Taiwan. And that uncertainty is what I particularly worry about. Mm -hmm. What can we say about the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the Obama administration was pursuing that did not happen after the change in administration. Was that also based on assumptions that are now viewed as 
too optimistic, or would that be a way to actually avoid the kind of escalation that we're seeing right now? You know, I don't think it would have avoided the escalation we're seeing right now. The TPP, as it was initially conceived, was not likely to have China as a member anytime soon. It was really conceived much more as a way to constrain China economically rather than to integrate it, at least in the short run. And so I don't think that was really a missed opportunity. I think where there were missed opportunities were as much as anything on the the Chinese side and, and the shift in particular from the Hu Jintao era to the Xi Jinping era, which brought a big domestic but also foreign political shift in China and led to the decisions over Hong Kong, over Xinjiang, over China's foreign policy at large. I think that actually was the key turning point in China-U.S. relations. When you look at what the current Chinese administration is doing, it's very easy for us to watch it and say, that just looks like a mistake to me. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Can it be that maybe they have something right? You know, in what sort of a world would those decisions be proper? One way that leads me to think, for example, is like our data privacy norms and laws that exist in Western civilizations in general, with individual rights, data privacy, etc. And that restricts our ability to actually gather data. And if data is what you need to inform your AI models, you could make a case that not having those restrictions in place actually allows you to advance more rapidly in AI. And maybe those restrictions are actually holding us back. And this whole era of AI is a brand new world in which it is okay to kind of relax those restrictions. Has there been scenario planning along those lines that give us a little bit more comfort that the way we got it continues to be right? You know, I, I... I'm skeptical of the thesis that China has a, a real advantage in data for AI training purposes. I think in certain concrete spheres where mass data from the civilian populace is important, like facial recognition, maybe it does. But those are actually kind of a unique use case. Facial recognition is an important new technology, but it's far from the only use of artificial intelligence we see. And for many other use cases, getting lots of consumer data is not necessarily all that important. If you want to have, for example, a artificial intelligence applied to finding submarines under the ocean, no amount of faces of Chinese citizens is going to help you find submarines under the ocean. You need a data set of submarine sounds under the ocean next to non-submarine sounds and apply your AI training to that. So I actually think we should be a bit skeptical of the claim that China's got more data or better data. And I think the key differentiating factor when it comes to the ability of countries to apply AI to different spheres is actually probably not the data in general, With there will be some variations. But I think the key differentiation is actually in the processing power, because AI training is extraordinarily processing intensive. And the number of companies that make the chips that are capable of undertaking this in an efficient manner is very, very limited. And, and that's why the US export controls have focused on that particular issue and cutting China off from these ships. Chris, the latest Biden news upping the ante on restrictions to China of advanced chips. I'm curious about your overall assessment of that. Do you think that will be a serious blow to China's ability to compete with the United States as we're moving into the exascale era of supercomputers capable of a billion, billion calculations per second? And secondly, what do you suppose their retaliation might be if they will retaliate? We've heard, I've heard scenarios where they might restrict the export of rare earth minerals that we require to build <laughs> these advanced chips. So how do you see that kind of playing out? So A, what kind of a impact 
could the latest restrictions have on China and B, how might China respond? So I, I think we should assume that these restrictions do have a pretty significant impact. I think the argument against that thesis would be either A, the restrictions won't succeed in stopping China from accessing the relevant technology, but because it's really controlled by just a couple of companies, all of which are U.S. firms and whose ships are produced using U.S. technology, it's just difficult to see in at least the next five years as to how China could get around them. So I think the restrictions will be binding in terms of preventing China from accessing at a large scale these types of chips. I think the bigger question is, can the U.S. succeed in capitalizing on the advantage in computing capabilities that's opened up? And that's a much more difficult question because the ability to capitalize computing advantages is a question of, do you have the right institutions in place to take your new computing capabilities and apply them to the types of systems you want to improve? And that's not a technological problem. That's an institutional problem that the U.S. has to work on, and especially in the defense sphere, which is where there's a lot of focus right now in trying to use tech to offset China's quantitative advantages. I do worry that we don't have a set of defense firms that are really well suited to capitalize on on America's technological advantages. And, and quite the contrary, I think a lot of them are not well suited to operating in a, a computing intensive era. So that that is my concern on, on the US side. In terms of Chinese retaliation, you know, I've heard lots of ways in which China might retaliate, rare earths being one of them. What I haven't heard is a good explanation of a retaliatory measure by China that would hurt the US more than it hurts China. I don't think that there is one. I think if China were to ban the exports or restrict the exports of rare earths, that would hurt the U.S. It would hurt everyone else, including China. And after a certain amount of time, the U.S. and Australia and other countries that have rare earth deposits would begin processing those deposits. And I think if you look at many of the other types of potential retaliatory measures that China is often discussed as having, uh, what you'll find is that they're costly to everyone, including to China. And so the choice that China faces is, are they willing to retaliate in a way that hurts them as well as hurts the U.S.? And I don't know the answer to that, but I think it is pretty clear that there's not any great low-cost retaliatory measures to China that would be impactful to the U.S. Would you say that really TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, is right at the epicenter of all this? It's right in Taiwan. Taiwan appears to be in the crosshairs of China. We ran a piece earlier this year based on a scholarly paper that came out about a year ago, said if China invades Taiwan, TSMC should be blown up, literally. Now, we see TSMC expanding fab plants into the U.S. and into Japan, but that whole TSMC aspect really seems right at the core of how this whole thing might play out. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that, that's right. And TSMC is, is one of the most interesting companies in the world right now for that exact reason. It's a company that until 2020, its two largest customers were Apple and Huawei, the Chinese telecom firm. And almost all of TSMC's productive capacity sits just on the opposite side of the Taiwan Strait from the PRC. Although TSMC's capabilities rely very fundamentally on U.S.-produced machine tools, software, and also U.S. customers, because today TSMC's largest customers are mostly U.S. firms, Apple, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, AMD, Intel now, and others. So TSMC is indeed at the epicenter, and, and that's what makes all of this so dangerous, because TSMC isn't just any company, it's the world's largest and most important chip maker. It produces 90% of the most advanced logic chips, as well as over one third of the new computing power 
the world consumes every year. And so if something goes wrong in the relationship between China and Taiwan and China decides to escalate in its effort to assert control over Taiwan, it's not just a question that's relevant for Taiwan. The whole world's supply of computing power would be at risk. So one thing you mentioned, Chris, and you've explained it really well in the book, when the U.S. had this technological disadvantage compared to Japan some years ago, and somehow all of that sort of worked itself out. Why did we not learn our lessons there? And how much time do we have to regain competitive advantage? Well, I think it's not impossible for the U.S. to regain its competitive advantage. The challenge, however, is that if you look at making logic chips. There are just three companies that are in in the game right now globally. There's TSMC, there's Samsung, and there's Intel. And no one else is trying to produce advanced processor chips. So it's a very limited, limited race without much real competition. And because there's only one U.S. firm in that list of three, the U.S. position is, is really quite constrained as a result of that. Now, it would be great to have more competition uh, in that market. Uh, but the reality is it's so expensive, so technologically complex, we're just unlikely to see new entrants into the space of logic chip making at the leading edge. And so given that context, the question of can the U.S. catch up in fabricating processor chips is really a question of can Intel catch up in fabricating processor chips. What's your uh, odds on that? <laughs> well, I have no more insight, I don't think, than anyone else in the industry. I think if you look at the the stock market, they're not putting a particularly high probability on Intel's success in turning around, but it's not impossible for Intel. It wasn't so long ago where Intel was ahead of TSMC in process technology, mm. uh, and things can change pretty quickly in just a couple of years. So I think too soon to tell is the answer, but just at a high level, it doesn't feel that comfortable as a country for us to be hoping that one firm and only one firm can determine the fate of US's access to advanced processor chip fabrication. For something so important to be reliant on just one company for US-based production is problematic. So Chris, reading about dictatorships, the history of the West dealing with dictatorships going back for the last 80 years, does China have any alternative long-term, or at least that Xi, the current ruler, does he have an alternative other than invading Taiwan with his various statements He's out on a limb, I think. But but also, I would imagine Xi is looking at what's going on in Ukraine. I heard that comment many times early on after the Russians invaded. I haven't heard it lately, but that has to give him pause that the world has really kind of come to Ukraine's side. And we do know Ukraine, after the Russian annexation of Crimea, prepared militarily. Who knows what's going on in Taiwan, but I have to assume that they've been doing much the same. On the other hand, the world would be very happy if he continued to rattle sabers and do nothing. But internally, whether that could actually work, I mean, do you have any views on that? Or are we moving too far into geopolitics and away from chips? Well, no, I think it's a crucial question to ask. My view, I think, is that there still is uncertainty about what China is going to do and that the rest of the world has a lot of leeway in shaping China's actions. I think if China believes that it can fairly costlessly move on Taiwan and the rest of the world will stand by but do nothing, the likelihood that it does so is more likely. If instead the rest of the world signals that it's willing to help defend Taiwan, and more importantly, if it's willing to give Taiwan the capabilities Taiwan needs to defend itself, then a Chinese attack becomes less likely. So I, I think we shouldn't resign ourselves to thinking, well, this is all in Xi Jinping's head. No one else has any control over 
his decision making because the reality is he's looking out at the rest of the world. He's looking at what political leaders say. He's looking at what militaries invest in. He's looking at what capabilities the Taiwanese have and develop as he makes his decisions. And I think the decisions that we make over the next couple of years will play a big role in whatever choice President Xi makes about Taiwan in the future. Well, I love a lot of your comments. I mean, it's giving me actually, it's heartening. I think that (laughs) we do have a response capability that might decrease the likelihood of some terrible event. Yeah. So I have to ask you, your book also explains something that I've been saying for a while, and I was delighted to sort of notice it in your book, that when you look at the cast of characters, as you have in the book, Andy Grove, Sanders, Jensen, Morris Chang, and perhaps others, all of them seem to have had very challenging journeys in their personal lives. Is that a coincidence or is this like a requirement to be able to run a successful chip company? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a a great question. You know, I, I think it is extraordinary the extent to which a number of individuals have played such a remarkable role in creating the industry as we know it today. And obviously there's lots of people involved and no single individual can do anything on their own. But when you look at the people that you mentioned who have built businesses or turned them around, or I also think of Lisa Sue as someone who's really turned right. around a, a business that was on the brink of bankruptcy Absolutely. to being an, an industry leader. I think there is something about the importance of, of leaders like that in the chip industry. And I don't know if, if semiconductors are unique or not in that regard. Right. Certainly, I, I came away in, impressed by the impact that a small number of those individuals had. And, and I also came away surprised by the extent to which people don't know who Morris Chang is, uh, for example. And I just think that's a, a horrible oversight, given that Morris Chang was one of the most influential business people of the last hundred years. And his career is just an extraordinary case study, not only in business, but also in describing some of the big geopolitical shifts of the past century or so as well. And so part of my goal in Chip War was to bring to light the characters that have shaped the industry in this way. Shaheen and I agree, you did that admirably. And as Shaheen said, congratulations on your book. I know our time has run out, but it's been a great pleasure speaking with you, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC Podcast is a production of OrionX in association with InsideHPC. Thank you for listening.